If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. The man in the suit works in a dying industry. He is terrible with money. His credit card debts have become insurmountable. His professional and romantic relationships are a shambles. He lashes out at those trying to help and considers gambling to win it all back. He even tries declaring bankruptcy, but it does no good. The strain is evident in his every move and word. As he finally admits the debt to his flabbergasted and angry significant other over the phone, he watches a freight train pass by in the distance. He leaves his workplace and runs toward the train. The man reaches the tracks as several open boxcars roll past. He matches his pace and leaps into one of the cars as it slows to a stop. His partner soon pulls up to the office and rushes from her car. One of the man's co-workers points out the direction in which he's fled, and she takes off after him. Spotting him in the train yard and looking only slightly relieved, she approaches. As the man sits dejected on the train, which is now clearly arriving and not departing, he softly sings Runaway Train by Soul Asylum to himself. Interviewed later, he said, What am I doing? I'm blowing Dodge. I'm getting out of town. Whatever you call it. I am running away from my responsibilities. And it feels good. She asks him why he ran, and the man says he messed up big time. She says he can fix it, and she will help. He was there to lean on during a difficult time in her life, and she says she will be there for him. She scooches beside the man, and says she'll run away with him if that's what it takes. They're in it together. This act of kindness and support convinces him to face his troubles. So Michael Scott and Jan Levinson hop down from the boxcar <laughs> and walk together back to their lives. I knew this sounded familiar. Thus ends the season four episode of The Office, Money Part Two. I chose this example for three reasons. One is that it amused me to use it as a frame for the cases I'm covering today. Two, it's a classic episode of one of my favorite shows. I declare bankruptcy <laughs> is one of my favorite things ever. And three, it shows that you can't escape your problems. They will hunt you down like Jan and Michael in the train yard. Speaking of TV shows, the three cases I'm covering today come from one of the all-time greatest, vintage episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. These fools ran away from their responsibilities, and it didn't feel good. Alex and Margaret Cooper were married in 1952, two years after their first meeting. They had five children together, and eventually they were grandparents to three. 
They lived in Cranbrook, British Columbia, where Margaret was a homemaker and stay-at-home parent, and Alex traveled across the country as a salesperson. Alex was an active member of his community. He was a member of several Elks Club-style organizations, played guitar for groups of kids, and participated in his church's activities. 65-year-old Alex also loved the outdoors and often took his grandson fishing. On the morning of April 4, 1987, Alex's daughter Lila and son-in-law Pete left Cranbrook to go on a shopping trip a couple of hours away. Around 80 miles into their journey, in Sparwood, Pete recognized Alex's car parked off the side of the road, just past a bridge that spanned Crayon Creek. They flipped a U and parked behind Alex's car. Lila figured he was under the bridge fishing the creek, but there was no sign of him there. They checked his car, which they found locked. His shirt, tie, and suit jacket were hanging in the back seat. Lila's curiosity turned to worry, and she called her mom, Margaret, who told her she hadn't heard from Alex in over a day. This wasn't unusual, but adding his abandoned car to the mix made the situation seem dire. Alex wasn't registered at the hotel across the road from the creek, and he hadn't been admitted to any area hospital. Margaret called them all. She filed a missing persons report and police examined the abandoned car. Alex's fishing gear and a change of clothes were in there, and there was nothing to indicate violence, and there was no sign of theft. The family could not believe Alex Cooper had disappeared voluntarily because he'd left his heart medicine and credit cards behind. Daughter Lila thought it was more likely her father had a heart attack by the water, fell in, and was swept away while fishing. Divers searched the water and surfaced with nothing. Searchers with tracking dogs combed the ground, and a helicopter assisted with its vantage. They too found no trace of Alex Cooper. Unlike the office's Michael Scott, the Coopers had no problems with debt. Their kids were all grown, and their marriage was solid, if unremarkable. Investigators discovered that on the morning of the day of the disappearance, Alex was seen eating breakfast at a restaurant a few miles from the location of his car. He carried a lot of cash and secured it with a rubber band, and he kept it in his front pocket, so he had to flash the whole wad when he paid for something. His wife thought he'd been robbed and killed after someone at the breakfast spot saw his money come out. After receiving no word from Alex for over a year, Margaret submitted a request to have him declared legally dead. The request was granted, and there was hope the family could move forward without their dad, their husband, their grandpa. At a year? That's really surprised. I don't think I've ever heard of it being that soon. I feel like I'd soon. wait like five years. I, also, I thought it was a law thing that they couldn't do it until maybe seven years. Age, maybe? Also, it's Canada. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I forgot that part. What year? Yeah, uh, 87. Okay, so technology is not exactly rapidly available for that kind of thing. The internet is a newborn infancy. baby. Yeah. Yes. Around four years later, on May 27th, 1991, a tenant in a Toronto boarding house was reported missing by his landlord after he was four days late returning from a business trip. His name was David Cooper, and he lived at the boarding house for the past year. No idea where he was before this, but he was employed selling frozen meat products over the phone. He would drive to different areas and then call potential meat buyers. Weird! <laughs> so the cops came to the boarding house to investigate, and inside they found a Polaroid of an older man holding a baby and it was undoubtedly Alex Cooper. Can you imagine being married to someone for that no. long and having children, No, and they just disappear? No. It had an effect on them. 
I can't imagine. I cannot imagine. Yeah, that is so deeply sick. Oof. Makes me sick. Alex returned to the residence two days later and instantly noticed something was amiss. He found fingerprinting dust on a light switch and other surfaces in the room. When he asked his landlord what the deal was, she said he'd been reported missing to the police. And she said she didn't know who did, but it was her who did it. Uh, <laughs> she was scared, that's why. Alex said, very good, very good. And then he <laughs> took off again. And the now 69-year-old nice. was in the wind once more. Two months later, on July 26, 1991, Ontario's Windsor Star reported that a film crew from Unsolved Mysteries was in Cranbrook to interview Alex's daughter, Lila, and wife, Margaret. At the time, it was a top 10 show, and the family hoped their segment would reach the right viewer who would call in the tip they needed. His wife, Margaret, was slowly realizing that the reason there was no record was because that wasn't him. it wasn't him. Yeah. So, Shaggy style. So that was sort of the, the framework of the Unsolved Mysteries wow. thing is that after he disappeared from the boarding house was when they were interviewed. So they're like, where is he uh, now? So they were starting to suspect that something was. Definitely. Yeah. Wow. Margaret told her interviewer, I had my 39th wedding anniversary not too long ago by myself. I live in limbo. If he's running, I don't know why he's running, but it's time he quit. He's got this family that care about him. And if he's out there living among strangers, he should rethink this thing. He deserves it, and so do we. Daughter Lila said she'd love to get him back. And then with a grin, she said, upon their reunion, she'd also like to kick him in the butt before hugging him. The Coopers were right to seek help from Robert Stack and the Unsolved Mysteries gang. When the episode premiered, a viewer in the Toronto, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada area called Authorities after recognizing images of Alex Cooper. Alex Cooper was located on January 10, 1992. Questioned by police, he told them his real name was Albin Arsenault. Oh, and why that's, was he on the run? And that's Albin, like Alvin and the Chipmunks. But with a B. But with a B. <laughs> Albin! <laughs> well, I get why he okay. changed his name. Yeah. Well, that's one reason. In 1948, when he was 26, he was falsely accused of robbing an office of the Canadian Pacific Railroad where he was employed at the time. He did not want to be arrested for a crime he didn't commit, so he went on the run. Wow, he mm. was on the run for a crime he didn't do? That no, makes are me we think sure? not so much. That he didn't do it? Yeah. That's kind of what I think, too. Yeah. That seems like a big commitment for something you didn't do. Yeah, I'm, I don't buy that. And this is a quote from the Unsolved Mysteries wiki. For more than 30 years, Alex's true identity remained a secret. When his 65th birthday arrived, he needed to submit a birth certificate to receive a pension. But unfortunately, he did not have one because of his fake identity. He could not bring himself to tell his family that he had been lying about his identity, so he decided to disappear. What? So he, like, legitimately... Loved them. Yeah, like he wasn't faking with the family, right? Not at all. And, oh, they so were, and they were very, And they were very close, I think, too. That is so sad. But they wouldn't have known what paperwork he did or didn't have. Oh, because he didn't have one for that name and he couldn't have done the other name because they would have been like, you have a warrant for your arrest for the robbery that you like definitely did. That well, really sucks like paying into your pension and don't get pulled out. <laughs> he wasn't aware that any charges that had been leveled against him from 1948 had long since been dropped. Ugh. So I think even relatively, you know, uh, close to when they happened, he never had to run. And not to mention statute. 
That's what, yes, what I mean. Yeah, I think there were charts. Yeah, either way, sucks. Like it was you, so over with. Yeah. You couldn't go to the library and like look up the law once in a while. <laughs> well, I can't tell my family that I changed my name. I better make them think I'm dead. That's better. Did in your research, Josh, did he come off as dumb? Uh, uh, yeah, I was going to say a simple man. <laughs> a bit. Yeah. Okay. Sort of folksy or it's just very reactive small behavior. town america or canada well yeah yeah <laughs> small town canada <laughs> that is wild and then nothing came from when he was found right because he hadn't really yeah he hadn't any committed laws. any crime yeah only a crime against you know his the family, family. Yeah. married yes wow what? they worked it out two days after speaking to police in hamilton alex returned to his family after five years away they couldn't understand his choices, but happily welcomed him back into the Aww. Cooper family. His daughter, Lila, said, we can't pick up where we left off because things have changed. Yeah. But we're going to start fresh. Take it one day at a time. And Alex, in his interview, said, mournfully, the way I feel, I don't deserve for anybody to accept my apology. What I done, abandonment of your family is, to me, one hell of a crime. The biggest job for me at this point is to make amends. It will probably take me the rest of my life. My family is very understanding. They love me and I love them. I'm not a criminal. I made two snap decisions in my life, and they were both bad. Alex and Margaret were together for five years after his return. Margaret died in 1996. Alex was 85 in 2007 when he was killed in an auto accident. That's intense. That's a fascinating story. And what a weird reason for all of that. I know. It's so sad. It is very sad. Yeah. What he a just, waste. He tore them apart. Yeah. The interviews, you could just see how defeated both uh, his daughter and wife were yeah. by this. Just devastated. Completely devastated. Well, and just could you ever actually trust him again to not be like, oh, he got frustrated and disappeared. Have you ever kind of wanted to disappear, though? Like, well, yes. I've oh, had yeah. many moments where I'm like, it'd be nice to just like go away. Yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> me, yes. Me yesterday. Should I just keep driving? If you were to do all of that, it would be for some sort of, not legitimate reason, but maybe more drastic reason or something. Jack Luter flew cargo for United Airlines. He'd been in the position since 1965 and was away from his home and his wife, Caroline, much of the time. Jack and Caroline married in Lake Tahoe in September 1980. They later had a son named Jonathan. They were in a romantic relationship for two years before they wed. It was now 1986, and Jack was riding high. He'd recently received a promotion, and along with it, a route change from the one he'd run for many years. After spending the weekend with her, Jack left for work and called later that day, August 1st, 1986, to tell Caroline he had to take a flight to Africa and would not be back until after the following weekend. But Jack Luter never came home. After a month of silence from Jack, Caroline called United Airlines and was shocked to find out his personnel file did not list her as Jack's spouse. She also learned that others had called looking for him. Other women, all of whom identified <gasps> Jack as their husband. No! <laughs> oh my God, I can't, I can't imagine. Mm -mm. These men. These men. Caroline was under the impression their six years together, they were in a monogamous relationship. Jack said as much, calling himself a one-woman man. 
she was deeply in love with Jack and was devastated to learn of his infidelity. Two weeks later, Caroline's phone rang in the middle of the night. It was Jack, who said he'd been out of contact because he was being held captive inside a Cuban prison. <sighs> he said he'd been on a charter boat in the Caribbean, which was shipwrecked, and then he was captured. She outwardly accepted this story, but inside she cried shenanigans. During this time, United Airlines also received word from Jack Luter. He sent them two teletype messages on August 15, 1986, with the same plane crash, shipwreck, Cuban prison story he wove for Caroline. They were not moved to action. Oh, wait. So when she called the airline, they were saying, yeah, everyone's looking for him, basically. They knew that he was kind of MIA as well. I don't know if they heard that, but I believe she talked to his supervisor and she might have learned that information then. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Jack called Caroline again two days later from the Seattle Tacoma airport and she drove to pick him up. She had not yet contacted the police as she wanted to hear the details from Jack first. When she confronted him about the other wives over dinner, he denied it. At the end of that meal, she felt sympathy for him and decided not to turn him in. Ugh. The next day, she drove him back to the airport. Jack said he was going to try to salvage his job, and he hopped on a plane. And as she expected, Caroline never saw him again. Dick. One month after Caroline last saw Jack, she packed up his belongings, filed a missing persons report, filed for divorce, and asked the police to investigate her suspicions of bigamy. Several of Jack's other wives had also reported him missing. Jack showed up in El Paso, Texas, where another wife, Teresa, lived. He stayed there for six months before he was fired from the airline and disappeared once again. Like Caroline, Teresa also chose not to report Jack to the police, though she was well aware of his other wives and many children. Jack Luter was charged with one count of bigamy in King County, Washington, the penalty for which was up to five years in prison and a $10,000 fine. A San Francisco lawyer representing Luter said, after the disappearance and bigamy charge, I don't believe I will be seeing Mr. Luter anymore. The lawyer also confirmed that Jack Luter was married to Caroline at the same time as a woman in Sacramento. In an interview with the Associated Press, Caroline Luter admitted, quote, On the one hand, all of us basically still love him. All I will keep are the good memories. On the other hand, he used all of us. Caroline and two of Luter's bonus wives were interviewed for Unsolved Mysteries. Fatima Luter met Jack Luter on an airport bus in Seattle. They married a few months later in Reno. After moving to San Francisco, they had two children together. After his disappearing act, Jack called her once, quote, from where I don't know, to say he missed us. She hadn't seen him since June of 1986, when they spent a month together in Denver, Colorado, while he was there training to qualify to fly DC-10 airliners. And Jack was pretty familiar with the Mile High City. It was there he first married in 1957. He and his bride Margaret moved to California and had four daughters. When Margaret was pregnant for the fourth time, Jack sent them by plane to stay with her mother, who lived on the East Coast. It was the last time Margaret and their kids ever saw him. They divorced in 1966, the same year he was married for the second time, again in Denver. This time, the couple were together for 17 years and had four children. Jack married again in 1972, this time in Pittsburgh, to a lady named Jody who was originally from Greece. After a decade together, he moved her to Tampa, Florida in 1982, and they had two kids over the next three years. There was also, quote, an unnamed Nicaraguan woman who was also believed to have married Jack in 1972. They had at least one child in 1973. Teresa Renova, also interviewed for the show, 
met Jack Luter in 1980 in Denver. They had one child together, and he moved them to El Paso. They never married, but were considered common-law spouses. And Teresa is who Jack stayed with after last seeing his wife Caroline Luter in Seattle. And from an Unsolved Mysteries wiki, a quote, as long as Subway's new cookie logs. There was another woman living in San Francisco that Jack was planning to marry. However, he disappeared before that could take place. Once Jack disappeared, his wives began calling each other. Teresa and Caroline slowly pieced together the true story of his bigamy. He had told Fatima about a condominium in San Francisco where his grandfather supposedly lived. When she searched the condo, there was no grandfather. But she did find a secret cache of Jack's personal belongings, including posters of nude women, garter belts, and explicit sexual photos of his many wives. The discovery felt like a nightmare for Fatima. It was hard for her to look at the pictures. She was hurt when she found out that she was not the only woman in Jack's life. She realized that the nice things he said to her were the same things he had said to his other wives, and that he did not mean what he said. Knowing that Jack always left his car at the airport, Caroline took a spare set of keys and searched it. In the trunk, she found checks and mortgage receipts for various properties he owned across the country. Oh my she began to realize that not only did he have other women, but he had also lied to her about his financial situation. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. 
Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. I can't even get one house. What? No kidding. He often borrowed money from Caroline, lying to her that he had no money because of some bad investments. He used her money to invest in real estate and pay the mortgages for the homes of his other wives. Oh my God, that's annoying. Whom he also borrowed money from. Oh my God. What a bad person. Between 1966 and 1986, Jack married seven times and fathered at least 15 children. Oh, oh my God. They all lived in or were moved to cities on his flight route by Jack. This has got to be like a compulsion. Something. What is the desire there? He seems to like control. There's a cop in a, in a little bit that kind of talks about that. When he was promoted and his route changed, he knew he could no longer maintain the relationships and decided to get out before he got got. So that's why he did the initial one month disappearance thing? Correct. Makes me feel better about my relationships. <laughs> I don't even know how these people think this way. Steps ahead of things I and plan so out busy. and organize and... I can't even imagine. I have a hard enough time trying to do something on a Tuesday. Yeah. Bigamist Jack liked to meet his future wives in chance encounters. He conned them into marriage, sometimes over years and sometimes only months. Over time, he would get the women to reassign ownership of their properties and assets to him. By the time the Unsolved Mysteries episode first aired, an estimate showed Jack owned six houses, six condos, and a 50-foot yacht. Oh, my God. Jeez. King County Sergeant Keith May, speaking with Unsolved Mysteries, was blown away by the desperate juggling act that was Luter's life. He never missed anniversaries or holidays or birthdays for his children or his wives. It's unbelievable. The capacity that this man has for detail and his abilities to disengage from one family entirely and re-engage with another family and take up as if he hadn't been gone at all. I wonder if he really liked any of them. Yeah, if they were actual feelings. I don't know if you can, if you're that gross, yeah. you have to have some sort of sociopathy yeah. to be able to do that to people. Yes. I didn't get the sense of a lot of closeness from him, but I believe all of his wives and kids had a lot of affection for oh, him. Yeah. I think because he was not really around much. So when he was there, yeah. it was a big mm -hmm. deal. Well, also, yeah, if you're not there a lot and it's one sided, you may not notice it as much and yeah. you can probably fake it for a little while, you know? Yikes. In 1996, a made-for-television movie titled Frequent Flyer, starring Jack <laughs> Wagner, dramatized Luter's crappiness. The movie is as shitty as the man it's based on. <laughs> Worse, maybe, because the movie paints his actions as cute and bumbling oh. instead of abusive and damaging. Yeah, I was watching that with you, and you're like, this is so not even the story. And the first third is just showing how he's boning all these women, basically. Just scene after scene of him in bed with women. Yeah, I was I was working at my desk. I kept turning around being like, is this another scene in a bed? But like, I mean, that probably is what it was that's like. That's a huge part of it, for sure. But 
uh, it really painted that picture of just having the people move close. And I'm lucky if at a family reunion, I can remember all my cousins' names. You have 15 kids. You're supposed to remember who's oh, yeah. who, who's friends with who, who's talking about what. I mean, you. I feel like you couldn't have closeness. I probably had one of those Filofax things. Is it a Filofax, like a flat Rolodex? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Two terms. These young people listening have no idea what we're talking about. I said teletype message earlier. Huh? In November of 2000, Jack Luter was arrested at LAX and extradited to Seattle to face the bigamy charge. According to the King County Sheriff's Office in January 2001, the bigamy charges against Jack were all dropped when his wives could not be located. He was then released from jail. What? King County further said there were no active warrants for Jack Luter. So I apparently his wives were not interested in going forward with anything wow. legally. And a final quote here from the Unsolved Mysteries wiki. In 2006, Jack reportedly showed up at the home of one of his wives in Sacramento, looking to make amends with her and their four children. At the time, no one was home, but he left a note saying he was living in Las Vegas and would try to reach out to them again. More recently, several of his children have come forward, hoping to find their half-siblings and or Jack himself. And I haven't found a record. I couldn't find a death record or any other articles about the man. So, I so think he's, he's still out there. He's either still out there and, or he's died under a different name, maybe. Oh, yeah. Because he'd be older now, yeah? Yeah, I think he'd be about 80. Okay. Yeah. So hopefully he's not still marrying and scamming people. That's just so wild. You know, I wonder if part of the wives not being located, you might recall for our very first episode of Always Be My Sisters for the Golden Girls podcast, the very first episode was that interview with the woman whose name I cannot remember, whose husband was a bigamist. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yes. And she wrote a book about it, and it was fascinating. And for her, the biggest part, which I think everyone could imagine and relate to, was an embarrassment. Mm -hmm. Anytime you're talking about, well, basically anything, people transfer their own thoughts and experiences into it. So if you're talking about a relationship or a marriage or a partnership, whatever, you're putting your expectations into that of, well, of course we'd be talking like this. And of course I would know all this information, but not every relationship is that. And so for her, she said it was so hard to come forward and to explain because so many people go, how's that possible? You must have been an idiot. You must have done something. It's so victim blamey, which it is hard not to because you think, how did you not notice? But you take someone at their word and, oh, he's a pilot. So, of course, he's gone. When you trust someone, it's easy to fill in the blanks, even mm -hmm. if subconsciously you maybe know you shouldn't be. So that would be my guess as far as the wives not pressing charges of being like, I just want to end this relationship and move on and not be publicly destroyed. Mm -hmm. But that's wild. What is the joy in that? Mm -mm, I know. That what sounds is tiring. Like he's just constantly running. To do things just constantly at a at a fever pitch to and constantly to hit almost all the bases. being caught. Yeah, well, that's probably part of, probably a lot of the thrill. I literally oh, yeah. almost had a meltdown yesterday, and I work from home. <laughs> I cannot imagine. Yeah, I'm flying around the world. My time change is always changing. I have wives and families 15 everywhere. Children to go to their birthdays. <sighs> well, like we were saying yesterday, Josh, because I was so excited for these stories. It's like you have to have some sort of desire to play God or something or some sort of God-like ego. I control this entire world of people. 
five, six women and 15 children. It's like that episode of SVU, uh, the John Stamos episode. Oh. Where he like impregnates as many women as possible. Oh, I don't know that one, but yes, it's, it's a, that it's a same disorder. idea. It is a disorder. So oh. I wonder if it's similar. It's gotta be. It's got something. Bad guy. Speaking of control issues, Strider Starfire had recently moved to Alto, New Mexico from Roseburg, Oregon, and found work with an internet service provider. Described as smart, creative, and charismatic, Starfire was known to spend time working on computers and, quote, surfing the internet. His move to the Southwest was prompted in part by Strider and his wife's separation and eventual divorce. On September 13, 1998, Starfire was back in the Pacific Northwest, where he went fishing that day with a friend and his dog on the Snake River in eastern Washington. As the trio were heading back to land, Starfire reached into a cooler for a beer and fell overboard, but he never surfaced. The dog was fine, and Strider's friend reported him missing to the county sheriff's department. According to Sergeant Patrick Kelly of Whitman County, we have had a lot of people come up missing or drowned in the Snake River, but in my 13 years of experience, I have never had one like this. Police investigated the vanishing, and things got hinky immediately. The friend's boat, said to have been on the river that day, was completely dry, and all the fishing gear and tackle were neatly stowed away like they hadn't been recently used. Inside Strider's truck, investigators found a fishing license and the name Daniel Chafe, which was Starfire's legal name. He first surfaced in Oregon in the mid-1980s under the chosen name Strider Starfire, which is horribly spelled S-T-R-Y-D-E-R-S-T-Y-A-R-F-Y-R. And I've had to spell that name a hundred times. <laughs> well, he can't help that he's a cool guy. Strider met and married a local woman named Mary Beth. Their meet-cute was at a country fair in 1985. They had a son and daughter together. But the marriage began to falter. One day, Strider brought his new internet business partner over to the family home. His wife caught on immediately, saying, it was exceedingly obvious they were being intimate. Strider tried to get his wife to accept this stranger as his second wife. And within weeks, his wife would leave him and file for divorce. She said, I'd just been through a whole time during the divorce of finding out that he wasn't who he said he was, that the last 11 years really had nothing to do with reality. Strider claimed he was the last surviving member of a Scottish clan called the House of Ellenstar. He had an embossed letter on parchment paper, which proved the claim that he was the clan's sole heir to its fortune. Well, it's Must embossed. Be real. It's embossed. So, obviously. Strider was a true nerd, so I think it's a solid guess that he gleaned his first name from Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah. The character of Aragorn in the books, played by Viggo Mortensen in the films, is first introduced as the roguish ranger Strider, later discovered to be of noble blood, who... Spoilers is the king who does return in the last part of the trilogy. <laughs> no, Mr. Starfire. I'm sorry. Just kidding. Mr. Starfire saw himself as a hero, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. And another theory of mine regarding his clan name, Ellen Star, and the J.R.R. token of it all. This is a quote. Elisar, meaning Elfstone, is formed from the combination of the words Ellen, star, and Sar, small stone. So to me, Ellen, star, mm. stars, Elfstone, Starfire, wow. Strider. Yeah. That's just where my nerd mind went <laughs> when I was hearing the details of Strider Starfire. Now, the Scottish clan thing 
reeks of being stolen from the 1986 film Highlander. Have you guys seen Highlander? I have. In Highlander, a Scottish swordsman learns from Sean Connery, playing a Spanish-Egyptian person, (laughs) that he's immortal unless he gets beheaded. That's usually pretty easy to avoid, except all other immortal swordsmen are after the prize, which can only be won by being the last immortal guy with his head still attached. The prize is mortality and the ability to have children. And having children, lots of them, was Starfire's ultimate goal. Oh, thank you. There was a 14-year-old teenage family friend who visited often with the Starfires, becoming like a family member herself. Oh, no. Yeah. The teenager, called Lisa in the Unsolved Mysteries reenactment, grew up without a father in her life. She felt safe with Strider and spent time with him alone. He encouraged her visits and doted attention on her. He often thrilled her by recounting stories from his time in the Special Forces in Vietnam and the clandestine work he performed for the CIA. Mm-hmm. One night when they were alone, Starfire professed his love to her before raping the girl. And this is a quote from Lisa. Out of the blue, he started to profess his love to me and told me he had been in love with me for years. That was a really terrifying moment. After Strider did that to me, my life really spiraled out of control. I couldn't make any friends at school, so I quit going. I did a lot of drugs, and I decided I couldn't deal with it anymore. Lisa ran away with her boyfriend and left a note for her father, revealing why she took off. Strider had molested and raped her. The girl, now 15, returned home the next day. Starfire was soon indicted on felony rape and sexual abuse and sodomy charges. Lisa also revealed that another girl living at the Starfire home was also a victim of the man. Victim number two, a ninth grader when she first encountered Strider, often babysat for the family. He groomed her with fantasy and his noble Scottish ancestry. He promised to make her his princess. Oregon State Police Detective Dean Persky said, These were classic cases. Strider, he's in his 40s, obviously a mature adult, been around quite a while. These girls haven't. He's learned to find these girls that are in an emotional time in their life, and he zeroed right in on them and was able to manipulate them. Strider Starfire was arrested and released pending trial in Roseburg. This was when he moved to New Mexico. Ten days before the trial was to begin, Strider vanished in the Snake River. Allegedly. Detective Penske further said, I don't believe Mr. Starfire was ever on that boat. I don't believe he was on that river. I believe he's hoping someday all of this will go away and he can lead on with a happy life. The way you're explaining his grooming made me think of Ward Weaver. Ugh. Yeah. You know, how he had, like, the neighborhood girls. I'm the cool oh, dad. Come the on sleepovers. Over. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Years went by. Fifteen of them. And then, in January of 2014, an Oregon State police detective found that Strider Starfire was living in Three Forks, Montana, and that he was fool enough to sometimes use his Starfire name, but he modified it slightly. He chose Gwidden Strider Starfire, the worst possible option. Also, you're in hiding. You're not going to go by John Smith. He also used the aliases Zachary Taylor and Curtis Jacoby. He was barely hiding. Starfire owned a business called No Bull Computing and was a member of the Three Forks Chamber of Commerce. He also worked at Madison Valley Medical Center in Montana several years before his capture, but because of his contractor status, no background or reference checks were performed. From NBCMontana.com, Ann Cleveland says she met Chafe in New Mexico when he went by Strider Starfire. We asked Cleveland about reports Chafe had faked his own death. She says Chafe told her he woke up on the side of a lake with a bump on his head. 
She says he feared for his life and that people had threatened to kill him, the same people who she says set up Chafe. Cleveland says Chafe took the boating accident as an opportunity to avoid returning to Oregon. An undersheriff for Bozeman, where Chafe was arrested, said there was no indication that he'd preyed on teens, the Great Falls Tribune reports. And I couldn't find any reports of further crimes against children by him until a 2014 article which states he was facing charges related to images of child sex abuse. Hmm. Investigators dug into Strider's background and found, of course, that he hadn't served in Vietnam and never worked for the CIA. Remember when I said he wanted lots of kids? Oh. Well, Starfire wanted to create a utopian community called the Cobalt Clan because of Cobalt, Idaho, where he wanted to open a business. His goal with the Cobalt Clan was to be the ruler of a large number of children. And I'm sorry to bring up the Highlander again, but I think the name Cobalt, like Starfire's fake Scottish heritage, also comes from that film series. In 1991's Highlander 2, The Quickening, one of the most nonsensical movies of all time, features an organization called Cobalt, which in the climax helps a resistance force, including our favorite immortal swordsman, to take down a sun-blocking ozone shield lorded over by an evil corporation. Somehow Sean Connery is in this one as well, despite dying in the first movie. The old age makeup they use is hilarious. There are aliens, several graphic, mushy beheadings, and hoverboards. Anyway, I think Strider pilfered this name and folded it into his fantasy world. Also in the first movie, the Highlander's clan tartan is cobalt blue. I'm just saying. And this is from KPIC.com. Starfire, now 55, is charged by authorities in Douglas County with six counts of third-degree rape, five counts of third-degree sex abuse, and seven counts of third-degree sodomy. He pleaded not guilty to the charges and was sentenced to five and a half years in prison. In the early morning hours of Monday, May 5, 2014, jail staff found Starfire unresponsive in his single-cell room. Medical workers attempted to revive him, but he was declared dead. Very wow. brave men, very strong, brave What's men. What's our theme of the evening? Um, I don't know. Men, bad. <laughs> yeah, men bad. That's so wild. What a spectrum, too. The first guy claims to have not done anything, so let's say that's right. A guy who didn't rob something was accused of doing so, and then years later fakes his death for five years for literally no reason. Then a sicko pilot who is making families everywhere he goes. And then a dude who's an actual sicko who basically wants to do like a Waco thing and have abusable children at his disposal. And that's the Pacific Northwest. Oh, no. Another reason not to move here. (laughs) I know. I wonder how many, well, men, uh, as technology started to advance, started to quake in their boots a little bit. Like, or like how oh, the... we, we don't need to update. The... No, I don't, I don't need a Facebook. I don't want one of those. I'm, I, I, I'm staying off the grid. It's like Lake Mead uh, draining and exactly. revealing all the bodies. Well, yeah. You know, it's funny with like online dating. It is a red flag when someone doesn't have social media. That's true. So... To some degree. Yeah. To some degree. Yeah. Like it can be refreshing. But then you're like, why, though? Why mm-hmm. don't like when I run a background check on someone and it's clean, like real clean. That's a red flag. <laughs> I know. I've got like speeding tickets at least. I know. It's like, okay, this person is real and this is who they are. This episode is unofficially 
sponsored by Bin Verified. That's right. I guess what's also so mind-boggling is the joy of starting over or whatever that is. Like, don't you want to just kind of get settled in your life and build and move forward? That seems like a very specific mental situation. I tell you what, I've had a lot of moments in my life where I wish I could do that. Yeah. So I'm going to. Goodbye. <laughs> Getting excited. Mm-hmm. I, feel I am. It. I am. Me too. I'm horny. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys heard? I chose this example for three reasons. Three. Three reasons. You can't slip up for a microsecond. If I ever stop talking, they will start talking. Wait a minute. Moya Kelly played Nala? Toe pick. Toe pick. I wonder if they'd even let me since I only have a partial stomach. They'll be like, that's cheating. That's the weirdest sentence I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) Excuse me, can I participate? I do only have part of a stomach. (laughs) I read the rules and I didn't see anything specifically about it. Well, I just made, I'm making clicking noises. I, 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 well, I wet my whistle. Oh, God, uh, here we go. I'm sorry. Sorry to make you think of a wet mustache. Oh, I'm horny. Activate the randomizer. (laughs) That's from the game show The Floor. That's just for historical purposes if we ever <laughs> listen to this tape again. Rob Lowe. You're sounding real good. Thank for, you. Especially for this hour. Thank you. Yeah, three things. Pretty good, Rob Lowe. Doing pretty good. It's sounding pretty darn good, I gotta tell you. Maybe the best you've ever sounded. But it's been is. a while. Well, we're so horny. It's nighttime. It's been a while. We gotta bang it out. Oh, is that what it is? We're nocturnally horny? <laughs> but you'd think to do all of that would be for... Beefer. After spending the weekend with his wife, Jaff Jaff said after the appearance, after the appearance, that's my, that's how I can I do a contraction of mm, disappearance. disappearance. It's a disappearance. Yeah. I never have anything to complain about. <laughs> I would like some vertigo. No, you don't. <laughs> I want vertigo too. It is the worst. Give me the vertigo. <laughs> On the morning of April 14th, nope, that's a four. <laughs> the cursor was in front of the four. And oh. It made it look like a four. Oh, that's silly. Oh, silly billies. Oh, my gosh. Did Clippy do that? (laughs) I love Clippy. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs>